a lot of talk about love on this day. Looked back to find out when. I, I, said, I thought to myself, I don't remember ever preaching on Valentine's Day before. And uh, so I had to kind of Google it. Anyone know the last time it fell on a Sunday? 2005. So I didn't preach on it. I wasn't preaching. Uh, February 2005 is the last time it fell on a Sunday. Not that I'm preaching about Valentine's Day, but I... That, uh, but happy Valentine's Day to those of you that are here. And I do encourage you. I know it's a manufactured holiday in many ways. But always a good, anything that causes us, especially uh, those of you, I'll encourage you who are married in here to think about uh, your spouse and how you're loving well or maybe how you can love better. Important. There are uh, certainly other kinds of loves, parents with children and children with parents. But especially on this day, it's often... Um, uh, often uh, love between husband and wife that we think about and celebrate, and I encourage you to think through that. Um, but I want to talk this morning about a passage that actually talks about love. Uh, this uh, short video is a good reminder uh, of what's expected of us as Christ followers when it comes to love. It's more than candy and flowers. Um, the love that God has for us and the love that we're to have for God. This morning, I want to look at Psalm 63 in our Real People Following the Real God in a Real World series. It was written by a man named David, King David. The Bible elsewhere tells us that David was a man after God's own heart. He was a man that understood what it is to love God and understood what it is to be loved by God. And it's evident in this psalm that we're going to look at this morning that he had an understanding of that. Let's look at Psalm 63. I'm going to read it. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up to it. Um, encourage you to bring your copy of God's Word or click to it in whatever format you might have it. Let me read it for you. This is what the Word of God says. Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. They who seek my life will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God's name will praise him, with the, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. Psalm 63. The story goes that Sherlock Holmes and his companion, Dr. Watson, went on a camping trip. After a good meal, they lay down for a night and went to sleep. Some hours later, Holmes awoke and nudged his faithful friend 
And Holmes said this, Watson, look up and tell me what you see. Watson said, I see a fantastic panorama of countless stars. And Holmes said, well, what does that tell you? Watson pondered for a moment. Then he said, well, astronomically, it tells me that there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Astrologically, I observe that Saturn is in Leo tonight. Horologically, I deduce that the time is approximately a quarter past three. Theologically, I can see that God is all-powerful and that we are small and insignificant. Meteorologically, I suspect that we will have a beautiful day tomorrow. Why? What does it tell you, Holmes? Holmes was silent for a moment and spoke. Someone has stolen our tent. I tell you that story for two reasons. One, it's just a great story, and I was going to find a place to work it in no matter what. (laughs) I mean, how often do you get to legitimately use the word horologically, which I don't even know if that's really a word. But second, and more to the point, it points to life outdoors, life away from home. Uh, And uh, David wrote this psalm. If you look in your Bible there, it says a little title at the top that aren't as inspired as the rest of scripture. These are are titles that are put in there, um, but I think is accurate to the psalm, a psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. David wrote this psalm when he was in the desert or the wilderness. Life in the wilderness for David, it was not a, we're not talking about a camping trip. Some of you might go on these, you know, you might go camping and you like being in the outdoors. I used to like camping. I'm not sure what happened. Something happened that I'm no longer a big fan of camping. And unfortunately, my son is. And so he keeps begging me to go camping. And all I can think about is the packing up of food and pans and pots and tents and the wet ground and everything else. And, but even that discomfort alone does not even at all compare to what David's talking about here. This wasn't a camping trip. This was a fleeing to the wilderness. This was a, uh, not a decision on his part to go for pleasure. This was a forced ousting from his home and from the city. He was fleeing for his life to the wilderness. He wasn't on a reality TV show. There are no cameramen. There are no safety nets. If something goes wrong in an emergency, he's in the wilderness. He's in the desert. He was on the run. There are two times in David's life that we hear about him fleeing to the wilderness and the desert. One is when he was being pursued by a crazed king named Saul. And he was being pursued and running for his life, and he fled to the desert and the wilderness. But the second time that he went to the desert is probably when he wrote this psalm, because at the end of the psalm, he calls himself the king. Because the second time he fled to the wilderness, he was the king, but he was fleeing from his own son named Absalom. His own son wanted to be king, and he wanted it so bad he was willing to kill his father to get it. And so David fled. Fled to the wilderness, 
and fled to the desert. Now, when I say wilderness, you might think lush trees and greenery, but it didn't look like that at all. This is more what the Judean wilderness looks like, much more akin to a desert than any of the wilderness that we might think of. The next picture shows you a little bit more of where David and his men were fleeing to. He was on the run. He was away from home in the wilderness. He was being pushed to the brink physically and emotionally. David was in a place of great physical exhaustion and desperation in the Judean wilderness in the desert. In the desert, there's a lack of provision. There's a lack of food. There's a lack of drink. He says, I am in a dry and weary land. He speaks of thirst, of hunger, of impending danger. And before we go on any further, it's critical to understand that this psalm is not written in a place of being well-fed and safety because you're in a different state of mind when you're hungry. I mean, that Snickers commercial is not far off the truth, right? You're not the same person when you're hungry, and you know it. I mean, I know it about my kids. You know, there's certain times during the day when my kids, I'm just like, what just happened to you? You are not the same person you were an hour ago. And then I realize you need to eat. Get some food in you, and you are a different person. We're different people when we're hungry. We make different decisions when we're hungry. When a person becomes desperate, They make different decisions than when they're not. This book is written in a time of hunger, thirst, of desperation. People do things when they're at the end of their physical brink that they would not normally do. I remember reading the book Unbroken about uh, the soldiers, World War II, that uh, they they, um, shot down on their planes. and um, Actually, it was a boat. I'm sorry. They, They were in a boat, and they got, they were in a life raft. And they, I believe the record still stands, the longest amount of time survived on the ocean in a life raft that they were in, these three men, uh, over 60 days. And I remember reading about this journey of these soldiers in this life raft and the things that cross your mind when you are hungry and thirsty that would never cross your mind when you're not. Hungry, they're looking anywhere for food. An albatross lands on their raft. Now, you might not have ever ordered albatross on a menu, but when you are hungry, you will do things you don't normally do. You will grab an albatross, break its neck, and eat its flesh raw when you are hungry. Probably none of us have ever considered that, but when you are hungry and desperate, you do things you would not normally do. I say that to say this, to understand that this psalm is written in a place of physical and emotional exhaustion. Most of us at our saner moments wouldn't do things we might do when we're hungry. David writes, not out of a place of comfort, but in a dry and weary land where there is no water. He's emotionally stressed. His own son is chasing him. What if he caught him? What if he faced him head on? What if it was his son's life for his? Or his life for his son's? What do you do in that moment? David is in a place of emotional exhaustion. If you looked back to 2 Samuel 16, you would see David climbing a mountain in ashes as he mourns the fact that his own son 
has gotten to the place where he is that he wants to kill him and take his throne. He's emotionally stressed. He has other people in life that he cares about, other family he cares about. There's families of the men who are with him that he care about, cares about. And so he's physically and emotionally taxed. And it's at this place of extreme physical and emotional exhaustion that many people might cry out to God in a last-ditch effort to gain his attention or just a wish or a hope that something might happen. When a person's life is threatened, even the most staunch atheist may cry out to the God that he does not believe in. However, what we have in Psalm 63 is not a desperate cry out to God. They may be words of a desperate man, but they are not desperate words. In this Psalm, we have David praising God. He makes multiple emphatic statements about what he will do in this place of thirst and hunger. And it says, in a dry and weary land, David writes, where there is no water, my soul thirsts for God. And then look at what he says. My lips will praise you. I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands. In other words, with my body, I will surrender. I will worship you. My soul is satisfied. I remember you. I meditate on you. I will sing for joy. I will rejoice. Why does David, in his time of extreme physical and emotional trial, praise God so emphatically? How can David, a human like you and I, praise God in the midst of such trying circumstances? You and I have times in the wilderness. We may not be forced into a physical desert, but we have times that will push us to the brink physically and emotionally. Perhaps it's at work. You're under great pressure I'm not talking about the regular pressure that you have a deadline to meet. I'm talking about the pressure that you're not sure day to day and hour to hour whether you're going to have a job. I'm talking about the pressure when you have major conflict with people, the pressure that comes that you can't sleep at night and you have to pull over to the side of the road because you get sick going to work on your way to the office. Pressure that second-guesses every decision you make, wondering how it will be perceived. You're physically and emotionally exhausted. You're in the wilderness. Physically and emotionally taxed. You just had a baby or another baby. Everyone talks about how happy you're supposed to be. And most people think you are happy. You knew you might miss some sleep, but you weren't prepared for this. Just when you go to sleep, the baby wakes up. You're sleep deprived. You can't function. You feel like you're failing as a mom, and you don't know what to do. It all seems to come so easily to other people. What are you doing wrong? Physically and emotionally taxed, you're in the wilderness. The doctors don't have any answers. You're always in pain and nothing seems to help. They run test after test, but things seem to be getting worse. You wonder if they really even believe you. You're in the wilderness. 
The end of the month is here again, and you don't have any money for the bills. You had everything figured out, but then the car broke down, and if you don't fix it, you can't get to work. One of your kids had to go to the hospital, and the unexpected bills piled up. Everyone wants to get paid, and you're working as hard as you can, but you keep falling behind. You're in the wilderness. You will have times where you find yourself in the wilderness. You will be in a place where you are physically and emotionally tapped out on the brink. But here's the real danger. The real danger in the wilderness is not simply physical or emotional. The real danger of the wilderness is spiritual. The real danger of the wilderness is spiritual. Because a place of great physical and emotional strain will undoubtedly bring you to a place of great spiritual vulnerability. I'm getting a buzzing up here. Is that just me? If I'm the only one hearing it, that's fine. But uh, let uh, let me go back. A place of great physical and emotional strain will undoubtedly bring you to a place of great spiritual vulnerability. There's a connection to what happens to us physically and spiritual vulnerability. Throughout the world today, there are people trying to use great physical coercion to get people to change what they believe spiritually. There are Christians being persecuted physically in an effort to get them to recant their spiritual testimony. Stories in the past uh, even couple weeks of Nigeria and other places where churches are being burned and Christians are being persecuted and there's physical persecution in order to get them to change their spiritual belief. Because what those people know and what they believe is that if you affect people physically, that you can affect them spiritually. And it's in the place of great physical exhaustion that you are most vulnerable spiritually been true throughout church history, that people have constantly tried to affect people physically in order to get them to recant spiritually. Polycarp, one of the early bishops of the early church, lived in the first century, 86 years old, threatened with being burned at the stake if he would not recant his testimony of following Christ. They tied him to a stake, gave him one more chance to change his testimony He said, for 86 years I have followed Jesus and he has not abandoned me. How can I abandon him now? And they burned him at the stake. Why? Because they believed that if you will affect someone physically strong enough that they will change what they believe spiritually. And it's in your place of physical and emotional exhaustion that you will be at the greatest vulnerability spiritually. We understand this challenge when we're confronted with it head on. If someone confronts you physically and threatens you with physical force in order for you to change your belief or change your spiritual belief, we understand the challenge. But what I'm afraid we don't understand and what I want us to understand this morning is that when you are in a place of great physical and emotional strain, you may not see it as a spiritual battle. You may just think, oh, this baby won't sleep or I've got trouble at work, or is this health issue? And you just see it as this physical thing that's going on, but what we often miss is we are at the place of spiritual vulnerability in that moment. In the wilderness, we're not being punished, we're being tested, and our faith is being strengthened. 
David praised God in that place. So my question for you this morning is how can you and I praise God in that moment? How do you praise God in that moment when you have nothing left? When everything seems stacked against you? When it seems like your best efforts fall far short? How can you stay what David did and say, I will praise you, I will sing, I will be satisfied in the Lord? You can praise God through times of extreme physical and emotional strain by remembering that your present conviction about God is rooted in your past experience with God. Your present convictions about God are rooted in your past experiences with God, and that's what allows you to praise God in the midst of the wilderness. David had strong convictions about God that did not change regardless of his physical circumstances, and those those convictions were grounded in his past experiences with God. Let me unpack that for you a little bit and explain it for you. Look at Psalm 63. In verse 2, Psalm 63, verse 2, your present convictions need to be based in your past experiences with God, and this is what will allow you to praise God in the midst of the desert and the wilderness and through difficult times. David says in verse 2, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. He looks back, past tense. He's in this desert now. He's in the wilderness now. But he says, I can look back to my time in the sanctuary, my time in God's presence, my time experiencing him. And I remember that time. And I've seen the power and the glory of God. The sanctuary is a place of worship. It's a place of encountering God and experiencing God. David has spent time in God's presence. He has seen God's power and glory. This is the same David who saw God deliver him in battle after battle and and, and challenge after challenge. And he says, if you were with me then, then I know you're going to be with me now. His present convictions are based on his past experiences with God. And so he can praise him in the midst of his difficulty. As a follower of Jesus, you need to remember the presence and power of God. We are such an in-the-moment culture. The past for us is like a month ago. We don't have often the, the, the bandwidth to have this historical kind of knowledge to lean upon. We don't understand the value of altars places of remembrance of what God has done. You come across them when you read through the scriptures. God does a great thing and they pile up this this pile of rocks and stones and an altar. You say, what are they doing? They're building a place of remembrance. They're building a place to say, this is what God has done. Let us not forget it. And every time we look at this altar, every time we look at, at this building of stones, let us remember that this is what God has done. We're not very good at creating altars in our lives. There's so much to remember in the moment. There's so much information, new information that's coming our way that we don't even have the bandwidth to remember what was in the past. But David bases his present convictions in his past experiences with God. Remember the times God delivered you, provided for you. 
that same God is with you now in the wilderness. It's not just your personal experience, though. You can read scriptures and look at how men, how men and women of God were provided for in their time of need. You can read Christian history biographies and see how God came through. See, there's a historical knowledge that's there that's important that will carry you through the wilderness. But we don't take time to do it. I encourage you, if you are not in a wilderness time, I encourage you to journal to write that, maybe you're not a journaler, but I don't know any other way to do it. If you're not a journaler, just find another way to do it. I don't know, type something, keep it on your Facebook timeline, someplace where you are keeping track of the places and the ways that God has acted in your life so that you can look back. When you are in the wilderness, you can look back and say, God took care of me then, and the same God is with me now. There are many moments that God came through for me Wendy and I often, we look back on moments and we would say, you know, God was with us then, so he's with us now. And you have to have those in your family too. So that when you go through the wilderness, you can look back and say, yeah, God, that same God is with us. There's numerous moments as I thought about this for this message that, that came to mind, but there's one in particular that came to mind that, that was just so evidently the hand of God in our life that I look back and say, you know, that was God, and that same God is with us now. And I've, I've shared it before, but it is worth sharing again, I think, with this message. When we, uh, after we had Isaac, we were um, very content and grateful that the Lord had given us a child. And uh, we had gone through a process, and that wasn't easy. But when uh, Isaac was born, we thanked God for that, and we're grateful for everything that God had given us. But there came a place where we said in our hearts, you know, we really feel like we want another child. Um, and we feel that God has kind of put that on our heart to, that we want another child. But, um, but we knew that we were probably going to have to go through the same process we went through with Isaac with some doctors and medical help and things like that. And, um, but we had this on our heart, and we said, well, you know, we think, we think that another child is really what we want, what God wants, and, and so we should find out and uh, pursue that. And nothing, and, uh, I don't know, uh, Isaac was a few years old then, I guess, and um, nothing had, there was no child that had been born. Wendy wasn't pregnant, and so we went to the doctor, and, uh, you know, just to find out what the situation is. Many of you couples have gone through similar situations and consultations, and he basically said it's not going to happen. Apart from any medical intervention, apart from any, uh, you know, the doctors being involved, it's not going to happen. We didn't, didn't exactly say that. He said there's a 95% certainty that you will not get pregnant apart from, you know, some medical intervention and help. And, and, and we, we, we thought that might have been the case, but, we, you know, you're hoping it's not. Um, and we said, fine, went back, prayed about it, said, well, we really want, you know, we'll go through this. And obviously for Wendy, that's a little bit more of a... Uh, commitment than it is for me. Uh, and she said, no, we want to go through the process and, and do this and uh, try for another child. And uh, so I had a mission trip coming up uh, to Swaziland, Africa, and it was right in the midst of this. And I said, well, maybe we should, you know, maybe I should put that off. Maybe I shouldn't go. We thought, talked about it, prayed about it, and we said, no, you know, if uh, we need to do what God wants us to do. And we believe that if we take care of what God wants us to do, he'll take care of you know, our, our wants, our desires, we preached on that passage not too long ago, that God gives you the desires of your heart, and, 
And so, uh, so I said, no, I'm going to go and go on this missions trip. So I left for 10 days to go to Swaziland, Africa. And, uh, and while I was in Swaziland, Africa, I didn't know. Uh, Wendy did something she had never had to do with Isaac before, uh, and that was go to the drugstore and get a pregnancy test. Because um, those of you that have gone through the fertility process know that they take care of all that for you. You don't have to get tested. They are testing you every day and taking your blood and everything else. Um, but uh, she went, got a pregnancy test. She didn't even know how to read it. She had to call someone and say, I think this is what this means. Uh, and then when I came home from Africa, uh, you know, she sat me down and said, you know, God has answered our prayer and I'm pregnant. And to understand why that speaks so much to God's hand to us, you have to understand that for 10, 11, 12 years, it didn't happen. It, it didn't happen. And, and, and you guys understand the biology of it, right? We weren't doing anything to keep it from happening. But it didn't happen. But uh, the moment that we felt that God had put it on our heart, that we're supposed to have kids, and all of a sudden, God answers this prayer, and we look back on that moment, and we say, God was with us then. And that same God is with us now. It's an altar point. It's a moment that I will never forget and that I will share with my kids as a time to look back and say, look at what God has done. Look at what God can do. It's undeniable that God moved in that moment. You cannot talk me out of it or convince me otherwise. I think God made us go and get the test just to show how powerful he is. Just to say that look what medical science says is 95% impossible is possible with God. And so you look back, and we have to have those points. And David had those points, and he says, I can look back, and I've seen you in the sanctuary. I've beheld your power and your glory. And if you were with me then, you can be with me. You are with me now in the desert, and so I will praise you. you got to have those times. Write them down. Remember them. Don't forget them. We have those times as a church, corporately, past experience, when we see how God worked in our lives, when we were praying about and thinking about the Family Life Center project out there. And we were thinking, you know, uh, about ta- undertaking the largest building project we've under- ever undertaken as a church. And we said, well, what we need to do is we need to go back and remember what God did in the past. So we talked to people like Dennis and Val Levitt, who were here in 1985 when we moved into this building. And we said, tell us about that experience. Tell us about what God did so we can remember what God did in the past so we can trust him more right now in our present circumstances and have faith in him. You gotta have that historical knowledge. Your present convictions are based in your past experiences with God. They build upon that. And so David knew that. I've seen you in the sanctuary. I've beheld your power and your glory. If you are with me then, you're with me now. So it is those past experiences lead to his present convictions. And what are those present convictions that he has? There's two of them that he gives in this passage. And they're both, they're the two because statements in this passage. Two big present convictions that he has. Two reasons that he can praise God in the midst of the desert and the wilderness. And the first one is found in verse 4. The first one's found in verse 4. Three, excuse me. Because your love is better than life. 
I've seen you in the sanctuary. I've seen your power and your glory. And because I've seen that, what I know is your love is better than life. One commentator said, this psalm reveals not a groping of a stranger feeling his way towards God, but the eagerness of a friend, almost of a lover, to be in touch with the one he holds dear. David speaks of God's love for him, but it is his love for God that makes us pray. The Hebrew word for love here is the word hesed. It's the loving kindness. It's the covenant love of God. It has a powerful word picture associated with it. It's, it's associated with the other Hebrew word hesedu, which is a, like a stork that lovingly watches over its young. And it's this picture of the Lord lovingly loyal to the covenants that he made with his people, Israel. He's faithful to his people even when they are not faithful to him. Your love, your loving kindness, your covenant love, your faithfulness is better than life. The loving kindness, David said, is better than life. Many people on this day will make all kinds of elaborate expressions of love to other people. Some will say even that I would give my life for you or I would die for you, but most will never be tested in that. But David is being pursued and he says he would rather have the love of God and die than live and not have the love of God. He would rather have the love of God and die than live and not have the love of God. I heard a story that illustrates this this week. It was, uh, well, it wasn't from this week, but I read the story this week about a famous British preacher named uh, W.E. Sankster in the 1950s. Famous preacher, and uh, he was preaching, but he noticed some uneasiness in his throat, dragging in his leg. He went to the doctor, found out he had an incurable disease that caused progressive muscular atrophy. His muscles would gradually waste away. His voice would fail. His throat would soon become unable to swallow. He threw himself into his work, into missions, into evangelism, into preaching as long as he could, but eventually his body began to give out. His legs became useless. His voice went completely, but he could still hold a pen shakily. And on Easter morning, just a few weeks Before he died, he wrote a letter to his daughter. And in it, he said, it is terrible to wake up on Easter morning and have no voice to shout, he is risen. But it would be still more terrible to have a voice and not want to shout. And in that, I see what David was saying. I'd rather not have a voice and, long, and know the love of God and long to shout about God than have a voice in my full use of my body and have nothing to shout about. David said, your love is greater than life. That your loving kindness, your covenant love is greater than life. And many of us who are Christians would give a verbal assent to these words. Of course, we would say that God's love is better than life. After all, didn't he die for us? Shouldn't we live for him and even be willing to die for him? We sing about it in our songs. We sang about it just a few minutes ago. We would say God is worth more than my life. But then in almost the same breath, we say things like this. 
If I don't get that promotion, I just don't know what I'm going to do. If that person gets away with what they did, then I'm out of here. If my child doesn't get the part, get into school, hit this milestone, do such and such, then I don't know what we'll do. If that family member says one more thing about me, then I'm going to explode. If the results come back saying it's cancerous, I don't know how we'll go on and I don't know what we'll do. Well, according to Psalm 63, what you'll do is sing praise to God. According to Psalm 63, what you'll do is say, I will praise God. I will be satisfied with him as with the richest of foods. I will glorify God because your love is better than life. Because here's the thing, if God's love is better than life, then God's love is better than everything in between the life you have now or life when things are really good and death. God's love is better than all of this. If we say God's love is better than life, then it's better than that promotion. Then it's better. Then it's better than that thing you want but did not get. Then it's better even than your health. Having God's love is better than life. It's his present conviction based on his past experiences. And so he can sing praise to God in the wilderness and in the desert. Your love is better than life. All things being equal, of course, we want God's love and life. In the Garden of Eden, that's what we have. But in this fallen world of sin and pain, you don't always have life. But what David is saying is you never lose God's love, and that is better than life. So he has this present conviction that your love is better than life. And it's based on his past experiences with God, seeing the power and the glory of God, experiencing him in the sanctuary. Secondly, and I'm not going to say nearly as much about this one, but his second one, it says, because you are my help. In verse 7, he has the present conviction that God is his help. David has been helped by God on numerous occasions in the past, and he had no reason to believe that God would abandon him now. More than anyone or anything else, David knew that God was his help. When he was a shepherd, scriptures give us the account of uh, he was shepherding the sheep, and a bear would come and attack the sheep, or a lion would come and attack the sheep. And he said, the Lord delivered me from the mouth of the bear, from the mouth of the lion and the paw of the bear. And if God was with him then, he knows he's with him now in the desert and the wilderness. David one day went up and fought a giant named Goliath and no one else would go up against him, but he didn't go up because he was the strongest or the fastest or the quickest. He went up against him in the name of the Lord God and God delivered him from the giant. And if God delivered him from the giant of Goliath, he is not going to abandon him in the desert and the wilderness and he is his help. And if God delivered you in the past and saved you and died for you, he's not going to abandon you now. God is his help. You can praise God in times of great physical and emotional stress because even when circumstances change, God's truth remains. Circumstances change. God's truth remains. As we come to a close, let me just bring this around to another person who is in the wilderness. There's many wilderness stories in the scripture but perhaps the most well-known is Jesus. 
Jesus knew this to be true in the wilderness. The books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us about the 40 days Jesus spent in the wilderness, fasting, tired, hungry, a dry and weary land. He was physically and emotionally exhausted. And in that time of physical and emotional exhaustion, Jesus, 100% God, 100% man, was at a place of spiritual vulnerability. And you said Jesus was at a place of spiritual vulnerability? The devil came to tempt him. It's the only time we have in Scripture the reference of the devil taking Jesus head on. It's at his time after 40 days in the wilderness. Why? Because the devil knows what everybody else knows, that at your time of physical and emotional exhaustion, you are the most spiritually vulnerable. And so he comes to Jesus at a time of physical and emotional exhaustion. Tries to tempt him. Comes to him with three different temptations, trying to get him to divert from his path, trying to get him from divert from his father's plan. And Jesus, each and every time, answers with the word of God. The time spent with the father sustained his faith in the wilderness and allowed him to stay true to the mission for which he was sent. The last of the devil's temptations, the third one, was to bow down and worship Satan as God. Receive all the kingdoms of the world. And you might think, well, what kind of temptation is that for Jesus? Kingdoms of the world, the devil offered. What, what kind of temptation was that for Jesus? He was offering him a shortcut. See, Jesus came for the world. Came to lay down his life for the world. Came to lay down his life for men and women to be able to have salvation through trust in him. The devil was offering him a shortcut. Just bow down and worship me. I'll give you the world. You don't have to go through the cross. You don't have to go through the pain. You don't have to go through laying down your life. Just bow down and worship me. In the wilderness, Jesus worshiped God. And he said, God alone is to be worshiped. But you and I, when we go through wilderness times, we will be tempted to give our worship and our allegiance to something else, we will be tempted to take a shortcut to get what we want or just get relief from the pain. But in that moment, Jesus worshiped and we're called to worship. So we can, so can we, when we are tempted in trying a physical time, shift our worship we can be tempted to shift our worship to something else, but we are called to worship God. In Jesus' faithfulness and overcoming in the wilderness, that gives us hope to live a life of praise. See, ultimately, the reason I can praise God is because Jesus overcame. He didn't give in. And his spirit lives within me and within you when you put your faith and trust in him. And so ultimately, the reason you can stand strong in the wilderness, ultimately, the reason you can praise God in the wilderness is because Jesus overcame in the wilderness, is because Jesus didn't give in, and because he didn't give in. When you put your faith and trust in him, he gives you the strength and power to overcome as well. There is no circumstance, no trouble, no testing. Alan Redpath said, former pastor of Moody Bible Church in Chicago, there is no circumstance, no trouble, no testing that can ever touch me until, first of all, <clears throat> it has gone past God and past Christ right through to me. If it has come that far, 
It has come with great purpose, which I may not understand at the moment. But I can trust God. I can trust God in the midst of those times that I don't always understand. So perhaps this morning you're not in the wilderness. Then keep pursuing God because you will need that experience to fall back on. Write your journal. Write down those times what God is doing. Write down those moments. Build those altar points. Talk about them because one day you will be in the wilderness and you will need to look back and say, look what God did. And that same God is with me now. If you don't pursue God today, if you don't trust him, what will sustain you through the wilderness? Or maybe you are in a time of physical and emotional exhaustion. You're grieving, you're upset, you're tired, and you feel lost. You've lost a job, you've lost a loved one. Perhaps your marriage or your family is walking through a difficult time. Maybe you're depressed. May your past experience with God inform your present convictions about God. May you cling to the Savior who knows what it is to be tempted to walk through the wilderness and to overcome. When we find ourselves in places of physical and emotional exhaustion, we must be aware that we're also being tested spiritually. The place of physical exhaustion is also the place of spiritual vulnerability. When you are physically and emotionally tried, you will be asked to answer some spiritual questions that you may have thought you already answered. But remember, even when you experience times of great trial, know that even when circumstances change, God's truth remains. In spite of what is true about his external circumstances, David focused on what he knew to be true about God. His love is better than life, and he is his help. And the same is true for you today. When our circumstances change, we often wonder if God is not who he says he is. But even when circumstances change, praise God because the truth about who he is still remains. Now, as we close out this sermon and our worship team comes, I ask you to stand. And I want you, in light of everything that's just been said and everything that you've just heard and now everything you know, I want you to hear this psalm again. And I'll read it to you. And listen again as David in his desert, in this wilderness, in this time of physical and emotional exhaustion, listen to the words of David. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you. 
your right hand upholds me. They who seek my life will be destroyed. They will get down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God's name will praise him while the mouths of liars will be silenced. Lord, Father, we thank you for your word. God, I pray for those this morning who are walking through desert and wilderness times. I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room who are at the brink of physical and emotional exhaustion. Lord, I do pray that you would strengthen them, that you would sustain them, that you would provide for them, that you would remind them. Remind them of your love. Remind them of your provision. Remind them of your faithfulness. Remind them of your goodness. Lord, because in those times, we are spiritually vulnerable, so I pray that you would uphold them in their spirit, that you would help them to resist any temptation that would come their way, that you would help them not to fall into despair, that you would strengthen them to worship and to call upon you. Lord, for those of us in this room this morning who would say we're not walking through a wilderness time right now, but we're also not foolish enough to think we never will, Lord, would you help us to remember the experiences with you? Would you help us, Father, to remember your power and your glory, to lean upon you, to call upon you, so that when we are in those times of wilderness, that we have something to lean upon. We are reminded of your goodness and your love. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your love, that covenant, hesed, faithful love is better even than life. We love you, Lord. We ask all of this in Christ's name.